Please be seated, and good morning. You can turn in your scriptures to Zechariah 8. Wasn't that a wonderful scripture reading this morning? Thank you, readers, for that ministry. I've been meditating on this chapter of scripture for months and really have come to love it a lot. Perhaps you've seen, uh, as many have, the 1946 classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And one of the most poignant parts of the movie is when George Bailey discovers that his hometown of Bedford Falls has become Pottersville. Remember that part? And Pottersville is so different from Bedford Falls. Bedford Falls was known for like a neighborly cooperation, people looking out for one another, a lot of trust. Pottersville, everyone is cynical and using each other. In Bedford Falls, there was affordable housing. And there are businesses that serve the, the common good, like the savings alone, right? But in Pottersville, um, Pottersville is filled with slums and liquor stores and strip clubs. But in Bedford Falls, they took care of the poor and the immigrant, but in, in that you would want to, the, the poor get trampled. It's actually like, it's not a place that you would want to raise kids and it's not a place for the elderly and it's not a place for the foreigner. So what George Bailey finds is that Pottersville essentially is what happens when you take George Bailey out of it. When you take George Bailey out of it, his leadership, his presence, his heart, you get Pottersville when George Bailey is evacuated. You get degradation and hopelessness. So as soon as he gets the opportunity, as soon as he can live again, as it were, he runs into Bedford Falls and fills it with his life and his presence. He wishes everyone a Merry Christmas. He, he even kisses his drafty old house and he's willing to face an unjust jail sentence because he's passionate about this place. He'll give everything. He'll give the rest of his life so that Bedford Falls never becomes Pottersville again. Now in Zechariah 8, we see that the Lord God had a very similar relationship with the city of Jerusalem and in the country of Israel as George Bailey had with Bedford Falls. Because for the Lord God, Jerusalem was his town. It was his city. And when Jerusalem was evacuated of the presence of the Lord God, she became a terrible place, a place of greed with hardened people and injustice and poverty. So the Lord God is passionate to run through the streets and return there and fill it with his heartbeat again, with his faithfulness again, with his justice and glory again. And once the Lord God does that, once he returns to his town and makes it his again, all the weeping and hopelessness turns into a joyful reunion. And that's what we're going to look at today. This passage from Zechariah is so full of hope, isn't it? Could you feel your hope rising as the readers were, were bringing to life these words from the Lord? It's not just for Jerusalem after the days of her exile. The reason that it was recorded for future generations is because it was a promise that the Lord was never going to take away. In fact, it would grow and grow and swell until that through Jesus Christ, it could be true for people all over the world as it was promised in this text. And it would be true through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The Lord God is ready to fill his people, his church with his presence, just like he was for Jerusalem. He's ready to make us a new Jerusalem known for justice and joy. 
We're going to see in verses 1 through 8, God give a promise, that promise of his return. And then in verses 9 through 17, we're going to be spurred on, galvanized towards preparation, that we have a way to get ready, that if we believe God's promise, we have a way to prepare for him to return. And then in verses 18 through 23, we're going to end with a party, an international feast marked by joy, the party to come, my friends. So let's look at the promise. Verse 2 of Zechariah 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Jealousy three times, and it's intense jealousy. You know this feeling, jealousy? Yes, you know it. The Lord is intensely jealous for Mount Zion. He's intensely jealous for Jerusalem. This is where he used to live. This was his house, and someone took it. It's a holy jealousy. Now, you and I might know a petty jealousy where someone's trying to move in on our territory. They're trying to take our stuff. They're trying to take our job. They're flirting with our significant others, and you're like, back off. I shoveled this spot. No one's going to take it. Jealousy is a protective emotion. At the very least, it shows that we care. At the very least, it shows there's some attachment there. And, and God cares, but in a holy way, not in a petty way at all. He, he's intensely jealous because this is a bride that he sacrificed for. He loves her so much, and he sees her getting used and degraded and tossed aside. And he's like, don't do that to my spouse, to my bride, to my city. These people that I love, false gods use her and, and abuse her and cast her aside. And that's not going to happen anymore. And so it's welling up within him and it's causing him to act. It's causing him to move. It's moving him toward relationship, not away from relationship. He says in verse three, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Can you hear that closeness there, the relationship there? But then, but then his people are gonna respond because it says in the second half of verse three, Jerusalem shall be called a faithful city. You know, she's not going to be turning to those abusive, false gods anymore. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, there will be no double-mindedness anymore, no mixed religion on the mountain of Zion anymore. This house is going to be God's house, and there won't be any more squatters living in that house anymore. Now, without the presence of the Lord, something happened, and it wasn't just religious. It never is just religious. Jerusalem became a place where you would not want to bring your kids. It was a war zone. It was a haunt. It was no country for old men. The men and the women died young in Jerusalem because of all the degradation, all the injustice, all the, the countless countries coming in and trying to take over. So many carried off into slavery. The very few elderly who remained had to hide away. But when the Lord returns, see, this is why it's so important. When he returns to his town and to his house, he brings about a rich peace and a shalom between the generations. And in the words of one paraphrase, Jerusalem is going to become a good city to grow up in once again. It's going to become a good city to grow old in once again. Verses four and five tell us all about it. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Can you hear the, the little kids laughing, playing in the streets, goofing off? Taking over with their games, staying out until dark, catching fireflies, laughing, drinking lemonade. They feel safe. And their parents feel safe to let them play. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. But then the Lord's presence also brings back the elders of the community and their wisdom and their love. And they're on the streets too. They're like watching the kids play, remembering when they were kids. Telling stories about it, maybe for the third or fourth time. But no one's complaining because there's a shalom that's everyone's in community again. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see every community become a good place to grow up in? A good place to grow old in? You can't say that about every community because there's some communities that aren't safe for that anymore. There are communities where people get warehoused away. There are communities where you can't bring your kids. But imagine, no more war zones in this world. No more families broken up in this world. No more malnutrition in this world. No more people warehoused away in this world. And this is God's world. Not Psalm 95 that we read today, this is the Lord made this whole earth. And he's intensely jealous, not just for Jerusalem, not just for Mount Zion, but for every square inch of this beautiful planet where anyone lives or where anyone used to live. It's his. And he wants to come back again and return it with his presence. When the Lord draws near, he turns war zones into playgrounds. And wouldn't you like to see him do that today? What community are you praying for? What school are you praying for? What house are you praying for? You bring that to the Lord in prayer. We're going to be praying later on today as a congregation. Lift up that community in prayer. The Lord is jealous for that place too. He wants to return there. Now, if you find yourself feeling skeptical about that promise, you're not alone. This skepticism is nothing new. It's been there for a long time. And, and actually, the Lord references it. He puts his skepticism in verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. We could translate the word marvelous as like too good to be true or, or simply too much. Is it simply too much? For the remnant of this people, this bedraggled and often enslaved people to believe that this is going to be true again, it's not too much for me. It's not too big for me. It's not marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. God can do anything, far more than we can ask or imagine in our wildest dreams. The Lord God is teeming with life. He is life itself. Whoever uh, he touches, wherever he goes, they are renewed. Families are renewed. Society is renewed. Pottersville becomes Bedford Falls. Babylon becomes Jerusalem. You know, one example that we can read about in history is today's gospel reading. When Jesus comes to an outcast woman from an outcast nation, a Samaritan woman, she's not even accepted in Samaria, 
And Samaria is not even accepted by Jerusalem. It was like, if God's going to come, he's not going to go there. And yet this is one of the first place Jesus goes to reach someone. And he's like, I've got living water for you, Samaritan woman. And then what does she do? She goes and tells all of her neighbors that, hey, hey, I just met someone who told me everything I ever did and he set me free. And then what did they say at the end of the gospel reading? Like, now we know he's the savior of the world. There was a revival that happened in Samaria and she was the first person who told the world that Jesus was the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? The first evangelist? One of the first revival leaders is a Samaritan woman. That's nothing for God. And you read throughout history all of the different ways that the Lord found people in pain and he met them in the exact places that they were in pain. And we're getting reports of this from what has been happening. Some people call it the Asbury Revival, that the Lord God visited um, a chapel service of college students, Gen Z college students. And one, one author kind of recounted and summarized what they were seeing in that. And he said, and, you know, each revival, the Holy Spirit seems to speak something specific to the generational needs of the day. A generation marked by anxiety experienced a revival characterized by peace. Isn't that beautiful? A generation marked by loneliness experienced a revival characterized by intimate prayer. The most digital generation experienced a revival in an analog chapel. A generation whose lives have been digitally mined and sold to advertisers encountered God without branding, without ads, without marketing. And a generation who suffered the collective trauma of COVID isolation found healing in a large gathering of people. You know, is it simply too much for us to believe that the Lord could visit our world again? Is it too marvelous in our eyes? It's not too marvelous for God. He will return again as king and judge at the end of history, making all things new. But throughout history, he's going to visit us in unique and special ways to heal, to encourage, and to turn war zones into playgrounds. He's always ready to draw near to those who are drawing near to him. And so that's really the second part of our text here is that for those who want this, for those who maybe they have got doubts, but you're ready to prepare for the return of the Lord, we can welcome him with our preparation. Now remember the beginning of this series. The Lord God galvanized the people through the prophet Haggai to rebuild the temple. He stirred up their spirits to prepare. And now he's going to hit the same themes again through the prophet Zechariah. So this is why we're doing in them the pair. Haggai and Zechariah are speaking the same message using different voices. And we can read about this in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple may be built. Let your hands be strong that the temple may be built. The Lord is saying, I want to visit you. Do you want me to visit you? I believe in this relationship. Do you believe in this relationship? If so, finish building the house of the Lord. Don't quit. You are so close. If we believe our neighborhood will always be a war zone, 
what are we going to do? We're not going to bother to do anything about it except build shelters for ourselves. And this is the, the short-sighted selfishness that the Lord is galvanizing his people out of. Because when people feel doomed, their vision narrows, doesn't it? Listen to the Lord God as he expands our vision and raises our hopes. Verse 12, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, the ground its produce, and the heavens their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. The end of verse 13, fear not, he says, fear not. What's in their future? Peace. Fruit growing on the vine. Rain coming down on the crops. You know how significant this was if you are an agricultural culture and people. If rain comes down and if the fruit is growing and if foreign armies aren't coming through and taking it from you, that means peace. That means your kids are going to eat. That means that you know that there's going to be a future for your community. And God is saying there is a future for your community. Don't let disaster, which you've only known your whole life, cloud your vision. The Lord says, fear not, take heart, take risks, invest yourself for future generations. Build the temple. Forget your wood paneling houses. Build the temple of God for future generations. Plant crops. Have kids. Let your hands be strong. This is the way that we prepare for the presence of the Lord. Now, this week I heard a remarkable report about the women of Ukraine. And it was from The Telegraph. It's a UK newspaper. They put out a podcast. And this week's podcast was on how women of Ukraine have stepped up in the face of the war uh, from Russia, the degradation, the bombing, and the injustice. One example of this uh, is Bakehouse. Bakehouse is a high-end bakery in Kiev, Ukraine. And they're known for, famous for their sourdough bread. Their owner, uh, whose name is Anna, could have continued business as usual to survive. She's got two, uh, one school-age daughter and one uh, toddler daughter. And so no one would have blamed her if she was like, we're just going to keep business as usual. She's got kids. Her workers have kids. Yet they decided after the war began a year ago to change their business model entirely so that they could give away bread and protein bars to refugees, hospital workers, and others who are on the front lines. And about 1,500 people pass through Bakehouse every single day, and none of them go hungry no matter how much they have or don't have. There shall be a sowing of peace then. And so we prepare through a sowing of peace now. That's what Anna's doing. And in fact, we're going to have an opportunity to do that. This Lent. Every year we take up an offering on Good Friday. And we do it for people who are suffering around the world. And we do it in Jesus' name. This year we're going to collect our money. Money that sometimes would be normally going towards luxuries and extras and just things that are nice to have, good things in life that are not bad in themselves. But we're saying, you know what? Let's sow peace in our world and let's give this money away. And so actually the parish council this week identified um, a really worthy recipient of our Good Friday gift. And that are people who have suffered in the wake of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. You know, tens of thousands of people have died. 
and think of all of the people who have survived that earthquake, who have lost loved ones, who are right now, they're hungry. Right now, they need medical attention. Right now, they need shelter. Right now, they need trauma care. And so we're going to give our money from Emmanuel Anglican to uh, people in Turkey, people in Syria, people who are suffering. There shall be a sowing of peace today, my friends, in 2023. And, and you know what? Even as we give our money away, and even as we sow peace, we're repenting. It's active repentance of our survival mindset of I'm never going to have enough or I need 10% more to be okay. I need 20%. I need 30% more to be okay. When the Lord draws near, we will not regret a single penny we gave away in his name. We will not, act a single, we will not re uh, regret a single act of hospitality done in his name. We will not regret a single act of courage done in his name. And it's worth asking the question, if we weren't afraid, what would we do? If we weren't afraid and we knew the Lord was near, how generous could we be in sowing peace with our life? This is why he keeps hitting the theme, don't be afraid. Build a temple, don't be afraid. Don't let people bully you into being survival mindset. The Lord God has promised his presence and we are called to prepare. Now, how is this all going to end? What's the crescendo? And for the Lord God, it ends with a party, party to come. The Lord God has a unique way of turning sadness into joy. And so notice with me what he has planned for his exiles in verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and of the fifth and of the seventh and of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. That's a lot of fasting. So imagine if there were four different seasons of Lent in one calendar year. That's a lot of, that's a lot of mourning. That's a lot of repenting. That's a lot of sadness. Now, what was happening here? Well, the people of Israel had all of these different fasts in these different months to mark different occasions. It's like the Ukrainians would mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a, an important month for them, this, you know, the month of March. Well, for, for the people of Israel, they had all kinds of months because they had all kinds of sad moments. They had the moment when, um, when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies and they were under siege, you know, no food or supplies could get in or out. I mean, imagine going through that. They had a whole month to remember that through fasting. Or what about when they had to leave Jerusalem? That was really, really sad. They didn't want to leave, but they were forced out. Well, they had a month to remember that. What about when the line of kings stopped? Well, they had a month to remember that. And what about when Jerusalem was absolutely fallen and ransacked and everyone scattered about? Well, they had a month for that too. What does the Lord God say? You know what I'm going to do? Because I'm the Lord. I'm going to take all those fasts. I'm going to take all those painful memories that are being relived a year in and year out. I'm going to take all of that degradation and I'm going to turn that into feasting months. I'm going to turn your fasting months into feasting months and you're going to rejoice. You're going to give God the glory because he's going to reverse all of the pain. He is going to turn it into joy. You're going to be filled with food you're going to be filled with laughter. Children are going to be playing in the streets. You're going to be making toasts. And you know what the best part is? You're not going to be the laughing stock of the world anymore. 
You'll become, the Lord's God says, what you were always meant to be, the light of the world, a house of prayer for many nations. God's going to turn Jerusalem from an abandoned and abused city that everyone used to laugh at or conquer. And he's going to turn it into a prominent place where everybody wants to be. It's going to be the place for the reunion to come. Pilgrims from all over the world will swap this place and they'll come not to conquer and steal Jerusalem, but to worship and pray in Jerusalem. This is what God always intended. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once. Can you hear the urgency? Let us go at once. Can we see the diversity, inhabitants of many cities, and not only of cities, but of strong nations and many peoples and peoples of all kinds of languages grabbing one Jew and saying, let us go with you, for we heard that God is with you. Like it or not, Jerusalem is going to swell with pilgrims. And so the Lord God is warning them, like, get ready for an influx, right? Get ready for a tenfold increase of people coming to Jerusalem. And at the time, they probably didn't believe it. They probably were like, no way. They would not have seen, they could not have imagined, they did not have an imagination for billions of people to turn to the Lord God one day through Jesus Christ. They would have never guessed. They would have never guessed that you and I would be here looking at these promises, celebrating them and saying, do it again, Lord. What do we lack the imagination for in our day? Um, imagine how crazy it would get on a Sunday if every single person at Emmanuel had 10, pe 10 people with them from every neighborhood and nationality represented in Chicago. Wouldn't that be crazy? We would need more translators. We would need more communion bread. We'd need more chairs, believe it or not. Like Israel, we doubt this could ever happen. In our city, it does seem that people are, more people are turning away from God than turning toward God. And so we just assume it's always going to be that way. But again, when the Lord God returns, he makes everything better and people want that. People, people want things to get better in their life. They want their souls to be fulfilled. The desire of the nations is the only one who can fulfill the desire of the human heart. And so when people get wind that that's happening, they'll come from all over the world. And they'll come from all over the city and turn back to God. One theologian and pastor who experienced this in New York City in the 1990s wrote this in uh, The Atlantic magazine. He says, there was no such thing as monasticism through which pagan Northern Europe was turned Christian until there was. There was no reformation until there was. There was no East African revival led primarily by African people. That, turn, that helped turn Africa from a 9% Christian continent in 1900 into a 50% Christian continent today, until there was. Christianity, like its founder, does not go from strength to strength, but from death to resurrection. Whenever the Lord God shows up, there will be others who show up too. There will be a reunion. And are we ready for that here at Emmanuel Anglican? Are we ready for the desire of the nations to show up in our midst? Do we long for him? Are we seeking him? Are we preparing for him in our lives, families, church, city group? Are we ready for someone to grab the hold of our coat and say, would you take me with you? 
Would you show me who God is? Would you take me with you into his presence? As soon as George Bailey arrives home, back in Bedford Falls, he finds that Mary, his wife, has been preparing for his visit. She's been spreading the word about uh, George's financial shortfall. And as he walks into the living room, Mary clears a table and George and Mary stand behind the table. And what happens? Men and women come from far and wide around town and around the world. People whose lives George has touched, people who would have fallen through the cracks of Pottersville, were George not there to snatch them. The pharmacist whose career he saved, the man whose family George provided a decent house, his brother, uh, Harry, a war hero who he saved from drowning in the lake. It's a reunion of everyone whose lives George touched. And there they lay down at the table a tribute of their money, of gold and silver, which is really their way of saying, we thank you and we bless you. Toasts are given, debts are forgiven, tears are shed. People erupt in song because there's so much joy. Now the truth is even better than the fictional movie because like Mary, we have an opportunity to prepare the way for our savior. He's here in our midst through the Holy Spirit. And today, we will set a table for him. We will offer him our tributes and we will invite our neighbor into his party of joy and gladness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.